If you would, please take a copy of God's Word. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 26 and 27. We'll start reading in verse 20, just for the sake of context, though. Uh, this sermon is plan B. I plan to preach verses 25 to 28 midweek. Decided I had more I needed to say about verses 26 and 27, about anger. So... Verses 26 and 27 this week, Lord willing, verses 25 and 28 next week. But again, let's read, starting in verse 20, verse 20 through 27. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> you are good and what you do is good. And we pray that you would, this morning, show us that there is something good about anger and yet there is also something not good and dangerous, something that needs to be guarded and contained. And so, Father, as we think about the anger in our own heart, be with us, speak to us, give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us, give us hearts that are ready to respond, both to the things we expected and the things we might not expect, the, the sin tucked down in the deep corners of our hearts. Be with us, Lord, speak to us, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. God wants you to be angry, but only about the right things. And he doesn't want you to stay angry for too long. We're all angry about something. Is it the right thing? Or is it the thing that we think God should be angry about? Several challenges this morning for me, for all of us. First, I'm preaching about Satan. Always hard. Second said this recently, we must not ignore the demands of the gospel. We must not decrease the power of the gospel. That's still true today. Third, I need to preach a sermon about anger without getting angry. But I've been saved by grace for good works. So this is possible. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Flip back a page if you want to follow along for a second. For by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. And what are those good works? This whole chapter is telling us how to walk worthy of our calling. And we saw last week this pattern put off put on, and why. We need to put on Christian clothes, we said. And today, we have to try on one of the most awkward 
fitting garments in all of the Christian life, the clothes of Christian anger. We need to get angry and not sin. We need to put on anger, but only in the right way and not for too long, lest anger consume you, transform you, lead you into sin and invite the devil over for an unexpected visit. So let's step into the dressing room. Let's try on Christian anger together this morning. Leads to our first point, put on holy anger and make sure it's holy. Put on holy anger and make sure it's holy. The beginning of verse 26, just read the first half of it. It says, for now, the first half, it says, be angry and do not sin. What's that look like? William Herricks, uh, Hendrickson, excuse me, paraphrases it, let not your anger be mixed with sin. The NIV, uh, more dynamic, less literal, but maybe more helpful in this case, translation says, in your anger, do not sin. Now, any way you skin this cat, translate the Greek, the assumption is that anger is not inherently sinful. This verse permits anger, though it does restrict it. Some would say it actually is commanding anger. Do we, do we need to be commanded to get angry? I remember I coined this phrase to describe 2020. Almost everyone is overreacting to something right now. Almost no one thinks it's their fault. And everyone, no exception, could do a better job reacting to the overreactions around them. Now, I think we're past a lot of that. But does that mean we're all 0% angry at the moment? Perfectly, emotionally healthy, well-balanced, even-keeled. Ask this another way. Does your pastor really think it's a good idea to tell you to get angry? Well, William Hendrickson says this, the age in which we live could use a little more righteous indignation against sin of every type. In his age, the 1960s was at least as chaotic as ours, right? So maybe he's on to something. Maybe some 50, almost 60 years later, we need to get angry again. We need to feed the beast. Maybe we need to start devoting blogs, websites, and other things to what is wrong with the whole world. And maybe we need to read the whole quote from Hendrickson. Oh, the age in which we live could use a little more righteous indignation against sin of every type. And the more angry every believer is with his own sins, the better it will be. I didn't hear too many amens on that one. Who's ready to get angry at your own sin? Is that how you pictured holy anger when we started? Now, this doesn't mean you're never allowed to get angry at the sins of others. John Stott says, in the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. But, but God's word through Paul, it's not telling us to just pour gasoline on the fire of our anger and then back away. Let, let it go. Let it do its thing. No, there are, there are guardrails here, aren't there? Several negative commands. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, nor give the devil an opportunity. Three guardrails. We're going to examine just the first one for now. It says, be angry and do not sin. Again, how do we do that? Well, we have to make sure we're angry for the right reasons. <clears throat> We have to make sure our chief end, our chief goal is 
properly ordered, properly directed. If I'm mad because I've been offended, because my honor has been dishonored, then my goals in life are too small. See, when I'm mad, am I usually mad because God's honor has been offended? Or is it because my honor, my reputation has been insulted? Am I just mad because somebody made me look bad? Zeal for my father's house and for his glory is probably not consuming me when some jerk cuts me off in traffic, right? When people question my brilliant ideas, Psalm 119.53 is not usually my first thought. That verse says, hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law, God's law has been broken. God's honor has been offended. God's glory has been tarnished. Is that the first thing in my mind? Over a decade ago, somebody was upset with me, and, and I don't think it was primarily my fault. I could be wrong. And in the midst of that, I needed to teach a lesson on the Psalms, I needed to teach about the imprecatory Psalms, the Psalms of cursing, if you're familiar with those. And along the way, a book on the Psalms opened my eyes to the anger I wasn't dealing with properly. The book is called The Cry of the Soul by Longman and Allender. I wouldn't recommend all of their books, but this one was very helpful. It says at one point, Christians are never angry enough. We avoid anger instinctively because we, we can't differentiate between the good and the bad. But there is a thing called righteous anger. It can be good. It can be Holy and righteous anger, or as I'm calling it, holy anger. It can warn. It can invite change. It can, quote, inflict pain, but it burns with the desire for reconciliation. It also warns us that we are in danger of violating love. We are in danger of doing damage to ourself and others. It also says it is full of strength that is neither defensive nor vindictive. It is permeated by a sadness that is rich in desire and hope. More important, excuse me, most importantly, righteous anger allows the offense to be seen as an issue between the offender and God. <clears throat> in short, reading all that helped me realize my anger was not as righteous as it needed to be. I didn't care enough about God's glory. I wasn't angry enough. Because I was angry on the wrong person's behalf. Mine, not God's. I was angry at the wrong person's sin. Others, not mine. I wanted justice for their sin and mercy for mine. Why not mercy, forgiveness, the grace that saves a wretch like me for everyone? Will not the judge of all the earth do right for me and for those who mistreat me? Can I ever... Be angry at somebody else's sin. You, you can. But first, hate your own sin. Hate your own failure to uphold God's glory. Then be ready to hate your neighbor's sin. Maybe you'll be ready then. What else does, does holy anger look like? This anger that does not sin. First, it looks like this. We need to hate our sin without hating ourselves. Rosaria Butterfield has said this several podcasts lately. Christian maturity is learning to hate our sin without hating ourselves. Hate your sin. Don't hate yourself. Secondly, hate sins, not persons. Hate sins, not persons. A little harder than it sounds. I 
like, you don't, understand, you don't understand what this person has done to me. I may not, but God does. The creator of the universe does. And every one of our sins is cosmic treason against our creators, R.C. Sproul said. And yet he, the creator, yet he has forgiven me. I'm the one who's been forgiven much, as Luke 7 says. Therefore, I love my Savior much. Hate sins, not persons. And why? Well, thirdly, we can only manifest righteous or holy anger in all of the other Christian clothes that we're supposed to put on. We can only manifest righteous or holy anger among other people. John Stott says, holiness is not a mystical condition experienced in relation to God, but in isolation from human beings. You cannot be good in a vacuum, but only in the world of real people. <laughs> we, we miss this. It's obvious. We forget this sometimes. And in all these things, I hope you realize how hard it is to be righteously angry. How hard it is to put on holy anger. But we have to do it. But, but it's hard. These clothes, they have a tricky fit. There's so many buttons, so many odd shapes. It's like a seersucker suit and a bow tie. If you can pull it off, you look great. If you can't, and I'm one of those who can't, you look a little silly or worse. Only Christ was perfectly righteous in his anger. Because only he could say that his emotions were kept under perfect control, both externally and internally. Only Christ did it perfectly. But Christ is perfecting me even now until I reach heaven so I can grow more holy in my anger. And I'm called to do that. To love God. To love what he loves. To hate what he hates. To, to hate even the unholy part of my anger that gets mixed in with the holy part. To hate my overindulged anger while still rightly hating the sin that aroused that anger. The sin that offends a holy God. It's a tough task. A tricky fitting garment. It's why Paul gives us another guardrail. That leads to our second point. After putting on holy anger and making sure that it's holy, we must also, secondly, put off cancerous anger quickly. Put off cancerous anger quickly. This is the second half of verse 26. We'll explain why anger is cancerous along the way, but let's read all of 26. Be angry and do not sin. What else? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. We discussed the first half. Some things should make us angry. God's glory being tarnished, his holy law being ignored, being broken, should make you angry. But we must not sin in our anger. That's guardrail number one. And we must not let the sun go down on our anger. That's guardrail number two, point number two. If you go to bed angry, you're asking for trouble. It says don't let the sun go down on it, right? But, you know, if you live in Alaska or, or Greenland where you can get 24 hours of, of sunlight in a row, you don't get a pass on this, on technicality. You still have to douse that anger quickly. But let's back up. Paul told us. Put on holy anger. That's hard. But he also tells us not only not to sin, but also to not wear this garment for too long. Certain clothes, certain things get uncomfortable the longer you wear them. 
Certain things shouldn't be worn for too long. You think of spandex, girdles, contact lenses, makeup, anger, all things that you shouldn't wear for too long. They have a negative effect. If you do, it's like the ring of power, the, the ring, it changed Frodo over time. Anger will do the same thing to you. You can start by wearing the most holy and righteous anger ever. But my friends, that's not a tuxedo that you want to wear all night. It's going to get uncomfortable. It's going to be more appropriate for the wedding than the Waffle House. I'm stretching my analogy to the breaking point here. But your anger might be holy at 9 a.m. But at 5 p.m. it might have grown horns and fangs and claws. As John Calvin says, it can mix itself with the violence of carnal passions if you let, if you let it grow stronger. If you don't let the anger die down. James 1 tells us to be slow to anger. Why? For, quote, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Not usually. James knew there was such a thing as holy anger, but he also knew anger is dangerous. Again, a tricky, fitting garment. It's a, it's a message that would self-destruct. It's not something to linger over. But Matt, there are just certain things, certain things that it's hard to get over. Certain things you don't understand. I... I have to be angry about these things. You said yourself, holy anger, it's a thing. If you're thinking that, li listen to some other voices. And all of them are assuming that holy anger is a good thing. All of them are assuming holy anger is a good thing. But, first, Francis Folks, what begins as righteous anger against sin very easily becomes perverted and soured if turned against our brothers. John Stott, we need to remember our fallenness. Our constant proneness to intemperance and vanity. We always have to be on our guard and act as censors of our own anger. Saying we're fallen, we're genuinely new, but not fully new on this side of heaven. So we have to be careful if we do the dangerous duty of putting on holy anger. J.B. Phillips paraphrases the second half of verse 26. Never go to bed angry. Somebody else once said, always apologize before bedtime. Probably good advice, even if you're not married. Don't let that anger grow stronger. Don't let the fire burn. As Stott says, it is seldom safe to allow the embers to smolder. Why? Because Hendrickson says anger may easily degenerate into the spirit of resentment, the angry mood, the sullen countenance that is indicative of hatred and of the unforgiving attitude. The day must not end thus, he says. One more quote from the Westminster Larger Catechism. One of the finest studies on Christian ethics that you'll find, especially its treatment of the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's moral law, question 136 asks, what sins are forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The answer starts with <clears throat> murder. It's Careful to say, except for cases of lawful war, what Augustine would call just war. It goes on. And, and notice how many of these begin with anger. How many of these things start with anger and it leads to the thing I'm about to name? Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions. I'll skip a few and get on to provoking words, oppression, 
quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. Anger that begins as holy anger can easily degenerate as something cancerous. Sinful anger that begets many other sins. We should still be angry when we offend God's glory, even when others offend his glory. Probably in that order. But we must be careful. No sinful anger, no angry sins. No prolonged anger which might mutate. No no unrighteous anger, no selfish anger, no vindictive anger. Only an anger that longs for redemption. How do you do that? How do you pursue redemption and reconciliation? Well, you can grab one of these peacemaker pamphlets. I have two of them up here. There's ten more out by the coffee pot. Nobody rush and get coffee right now. Um, It's a dead giveaway. That was a joke. It's only a couple of you who are laughing. There's ten more of these by the coffee pot. We have more in the library. Maybe you overlook the thing that made you anger. Proverbs 19.11. It is a glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes you get over it. Sometimes you let it go. Sometimes you absorb the hurt yourself and you move on. And if not, we keep short accounts, as Rick Stark would say, my pastor from back in seminary. Keep short accounts, bury the hatchet, apologize if it's you, confront someone in love if it's them, or maybe overlook it. One way or another, nip it in the bud, even if it's their fault, not yours. Maybe it's more their fault. Confess your part first. Own your 5% so that you can sleep at night. Let them worry about their 95%. You're not responsible for their actions. You are responsible for yours, even if it's a small part. I encourage you, don't let the debt they owe you or that you owe them. Don't let it grow in interest for years and years, even for days. Because if we let anger linger, Satan will have a field day. That's what our third point is. That's that's what it says to us in the text. It says, beware the enemy. Not, Not literally, I'm summarizing at this point. Beware the enemy who seeks an opportunity for destruction in our anger. Beware the enemy. This is what verse 27 is saying. Let's... Let's read it all together. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. No opportunity to the devil. The Greek word, opportunity, it's topos, like topography, meaning place. The NIV says, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, I may not be the best rock climber among the pastoral staff, but I know this. Foothold is a climbing term. A foothold is where you put your foot so that you can get your balance, so that you can climb up, so that you can reach for the next rock, the next handhold, so you can keep climbing. You can't climb anything, really, without footholds or handholds. And you see, the better you are at climbing, the smaller the handholds and footholds need to be. Do you see where I'm going? Do you see where the NIV is going? It's saying by implication, Satan doesn't need much to work with. Give him one small foothold, and he'll be climbing Everest, K2, while he's at it. He's a prowling lion, 
seeking whom he may devour, First Peter says. He's an expert climber who's ready to scale the heights of Mount Destruction. Stott says the evils to be avoided, and he's talking about everything from verse 25 and on. The evils to be avoided are all destroyers of human harmony. And do you remember how chapter 4 starts? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Unity and purity. Well, that's not, that's not going to happen if we aren't patient. It's not going to happen if we let anger burn all through the night and the next day as well. Satan's going to pour the gasoline on that fire, on you and me. And then he might do something really sneaky. He might send you to church. We can only pray that the body of Christ around us is wise enough, brave enough to try to put that fire out. Because there's a fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger, between holy anger and cancerous anger. Cancerous anger, this raging inferno. Calvin calls it the poison of hatred. Hendrickson says, Satan will quickly seize the opportunity of changing our indignation, whether righteous or unrighteous, into a grievance, a grudge, a nursing of wrath, an unwillingness to forgive. As you hear all that, aren't you thinking if you could put a stop to that, if you knew that that was going on in someone else and you could just end it, wouldn't you do it quickly, instantly? At the same time, we may not be able to, it's not a may not, we cannot control other people's anger, but we can control ours. God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of might, and of self-control. And with the spirit, we can resist the devil so that he will flee from us, James says. We can, we should, we should do it from the very start. Now, Keep in mind, <clears throat> maybe we'll fail the first test. Maybe we'll plow through that first guardrail, right? Maybe we'll sin in our anger. Maybe we'll crash through guardrail number two. We'll let the sun go down on our anger. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm urging you, don't crash through the third one. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him an opportunity. Don't give him any room to enter that half-open door. Don't give him a place to stand. Don't yield to him. Don't compromise. Don't let him use your anger for his dastardly purposes. Don't let him use your anger to destroy the church that your Savior loves. That's a hard sermon for all of us. I, I, I know it. I feel it. Don't miss that last phrase, the church that your Savior loves. Because why is God giving us all these warnings? Why is he putting all these, these guardrails up for us? Because God loves the church more than we do. More than I do. Isn't that good news? The only one who was ever perfectly angry, Christ our Lord, the only one who's ever perfectly angry, He's also the one who ever loved perfectly. He loves his church. Every last member. In his righteous anger with our sin, he never sinned. He never let his anger linger, boil over into sin. Which is why his father was well pleased with him. And he never let the devil get a foothold. No, quite the opposite. He died for our sin to defeat sin 
and to defeat the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8 says. He died to destroy Satan's destruction. And he died to unify and purify his church. He died for you and me and all of our misplaced anger, all of our anger at him, a category we haven't even spent time on. Yes, preached a whole sermon on anger, and I'm telling you, I could have gone further. I'm not sure what that says about me. I'm not sure what it says about all of us. He died for us in all of our misplaced anger, sometimes in anger at him because he has allowed the circumstances in my life to be what they are, and I don't think they're what they should be. I think I deserve more. I think I deserve better. Oh, not sure I want to go down that road. I'm not sure any of us do. But praise the Lord, he died for us in all of our misplaced anger. He died to kill that unrighteous anger with gospel kindness. To transform it into holy anger. And again, what does that look like? Holy anger. It burns for reconciliation and for God's glory. It knows the danger of any anger. It knows the enemy. His schemes, what he might do with something that starts out as a good thing. Holy anger longs for a purified, unified body of Christ. Started out by saying, God wants you to be angry. And I want you to be angry. Kind of. I do want you to hate impurity and disunity and the unrighteous anger that can cause it, but even more. I want you to love. I want you to love unity and purity. I want you to love the church. I want you to love the Christ who died to purify the church, to unify the church. I want you to love the Christ who died to save you, to free you from the anger that can destroy his church, the anger that can destroy you, Many have said bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I want you to hate your sin, anger, bitterness, and all the rest. I want you to hate your sin until you love Christ more. Because as Thomas Watson said, until our sin be bitter, Christ will never be sweet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive me, forgive all of us when our anger boils over. Forgive me if it's happened in the last, last few minutes. Forgive me if I've said anything inappropriate. God, be with us all. Help us to see that anger, that zeal, love for your holiness, these are good things, but they can easily turn into a bad thing. Oh, Father, we do not have perfect self-control. We pray that you would give us better self-control. Our anger is not perfect. We pray that you would more perfectly shape it and mold it in your image, that we would love what you love and hate what you hate. Most of the time, we love ourselves. We hate those who would put us down, who would make us feel less. God, most of the time, we love us. We love our reputation. We love our kingdom and our glory. Oh God, help us to love you more. Help us to love your kingdom. Help us to love your glory. For it's your kingdom that has set up residence in our heart for many of us. It's your kingdom that has 
ruled and reigned over our sin and caused us to see the joy of our salvation. Oh, Father, would you show it to us again for the first, as if it's the first time. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and renew me with the right spirit. Oh, God, this we pray, whether it's for the first time or the 400th time. In Jesus' great name, amen.